podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at CypherCast.net. And follow us on Twitter at CypherCast.net. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we will be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing, The World is But a Maze. We discuss how the different modes of play affect character development in the Invisible Sun RPG. Join us on the path of suns, and we may uncover a secret or two. When we cast The World is But a Maze, we discuss gameplay aspects of the Invisible Sun RPG. Today we're going to talk about how the different modes of play affect how players may build their characters and the effects this has on your game. To quickly uh, remind you of the different modes of play, uh, the game is designed based on three modes. The first and the simplest is development mode. This is the mode in which uh, typically a, a GM and a single player, though you could have more than one player, will interact directly uh, and uh, use the sooth deck to determine tone um, or to or elements of the narrative and to set a maximum difficulty of successful tasks. But otherwise, this mode is almost entirely storytelling and narrative. Uh, the example used in the original Kickstarter videos included sitting, it's designed so you can get, sit at a cafe with a GM and a player and just play out a, a scene um, to advance that character's uh, story uh, or something along those lines. Yeah, it's for like filling in backstory too. Yes, it has a lot of purposes, but it's supposed to be a very yeah. simple mode. Mm -hmm. The second mode is narrative mode. In this mode, uh, all the players are typically present. Uh, it is in, in, assumed in the, uh, the game that they are together, um, though this could also be online. Um, but typically it's assumed that they are in the same place, that everyone's participating in the storytelling. And here storytelling is the focus uh, without a strong focus on timing and sequence uh, or the sorts of detailed tactics one needs um, in the third mode, which is action mode. This is the mode people are most familiar with. This is where most of the rules in traditional RPGs are focused. Uh, it is the tactical component of the game where you uh, manage resources and carefully sequence your actions in order to overcome some adversary, often through combat um, or through other uh tasks that require careful attention to second-by-second second timing of who acts when and what exactly they do. I have an important question for you, Scott. Uh-oh. Shoot. Um, I, this is a question about uh, RPGs in general, not Invisible Sun specifically. What is your favorite mode when you're playing role-playing games? Recently, it has been narrative mode, and I'll definitely get more into this as we talk about how my uh, game's going right now. Though I would say oh, most of the games I've played over my lifetime have focused on action mode. Yeah, I, I think I'm there with you. Like narrative mode, I think is my favorite. It's definitely my favorite when I'm a player. Uh, action and tactics, like I don't, I don't care as much anymore. I used to be more into it when I was, uh, you know, deeper into Dungeons and Dragons. But hey. I like narrative mode way more these days. In some ways, these three modes are almost three different great games that are that are stitched together. 
uh, people can debate the success of that stitching. Uh, but you have development mode representing a minimalist, heavy narrativist game uh, that you see most often in sort of the indie game space. Uh, action mode is the uh, can be the more tactical uh, type of game that people think all the maybe not quite as tactical as a like GURPS um, and how detailed that can be. Uh, though that detail is at least as much in character development as it in anywhere else. Uh, but it's you know on that extreme of simulationist tactical gaming with narrative mode being somewhere in the middle. Uh, and so you you kind of have these different games you can mix together in terms of the mode of play to uh, within under the umbrella of Invisible Sun. And different tables are likely to mix these differently. And I'll talk a bit about how my table mixes it, uh, but that doesn't mean there's a right or the wrong way to do these mixes. Uh, I think there's there would be nothing wrong with a GM and, say, one player having an entire campaign entirely in development mode. Uh, that's still playing the game. It is mm-hmm. not maybe using all of the rules, but we never use all of the rules. Uh, and if you have fun, that's great. And I hope this game helped you have fun. Uh, similarly, you could do a dungeon crawl almost entirely in action mode. And uh, that's not really what I'm doing with my games recently, but this game supports that. Um, yeah, I was going to say, talking about rules, <laughs> there's something I tell one of my friends is that rules in RPGs are stupid and I don't care about them. <laughs> I uh, frequently get rules wrong um, and I don't spend a lot of time regretting getting rules wrong. Uh, but I do like them for uh, how they can structure and balance play a little bit. But we'll get mm-hmm. into that as we discuss these different modes because the rules about the different modes do affect how people invest in their characters and that will change how your game plays out. And I thought I wanted to discuss this topic because it's not obvious in a first read of the rules to at least not to everybody that these how you balance your play across these modes will have significant implications for how characters are are incentivized to build their characters and uh, that will change your game uh, as you go on so let's look talk first about development mode Um, in development mode people tend not to focus on resource management much at all I don't believe there's any rule that says you can't track your pools and uh, all of those resources that you have uh, in uh, development mode, but it's clearly designed for you not to do that uh, because it's hard to do that at a cafe when you have to so pull out your pool sheet and put down all your cubes um, or pull up a spreadsheet where you're tracking all of this. Uh, it's just not designed for the resource management aspect. And in fact, it's designed for when you don't want to have uh, those sorts of, of uh, accessories with you. Yeah, it so seems like this was designed so that it can be spontaneous and easy to get into. Right. So people don't track how many points they've spent. Uh, you, you don't build ventures in the in the basic system. Instead, you're using the sooth deck uh, to determine the maximum difficulty of successful tasks because each sooth deck card has a number on it. And it'll say, if you get a nine, oh, you can go crazy with this particular scene. But if you get a one, uh, well, there's not much you can accomplish. And so this may be more of a story about you failing to do what you hope to accomplish. Uh, But you aren't building a venture and saying, well, I rolled a one, um, but I have added this many Benet or this because you're not using those resources. When you've done development mode sessions, are you drawing a sooth card prior to determining what the players are trying to do, or is that something that you're drawing to 
see how it turned out. I, if I recall by the, by the book, it is supposed to be one sooth pull per scene with mm-hmm. the assumption being develop mode will be just one scene. So you set the scene, pull the card uh, at the moment that they are more or less determining what they're going to do. And then you, that puts the ceiling on what they can accomplish. Okay. I don't see it as reactive where they say, I'm going to jump over the chasm. Told, we'll flip the sooth card and see, oh, uh, you didn't make it. Instead, it's um, uh, there is an obstacle I want to overcome. It could still be a chasm, even in development mode, and say, okay, so you're trying to get over to the mysterious castle in the in the uh, the flame of a candle. Uh, so let's flip over the sooth card. Oh, it's a two. Uh, there's not a lot you can do. <laughs> uh, so what minimally can you do? And uh, you might even narrate the frustration of not being able to accomplish this in this particular develop mode session. But I would see no problem with, uh, and, and in fact, sometimes when I've done develop mode, I, I did an entire session with multiple people to try this out during the play test where we played entirely in develop mode. And every time we had a new scene, we flipped over a new sooth card. So we might have a scene in this chasm example. Oh, well, you flipped over the sooth card. It's a two. There's not much you can do. Uh, you can narrate what you attempt and fail to do, but you wouldn't narrate, I fall into the chasm and die. You're just like, I tried to do, I tried to build this bridge. It didn't work. Like, okay, um, what are you going to try next? And then that would justify a new flip of the sooth deck. But I think by the books, it's one sooth deck flip per development mode scene. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'd like to refer to my previous statement that rules are stupid. <laughs> right. I We had a good time in our session for like about two hours. So just every time we had a new uh, scene or obstacle or anything along those lines, we just flipped a new card and went through you know, eight or nine cards in an hour. Um, and that worked out great. So uh, I don't think it's consistent with the rules, but that doesn't mean I won't do it in the future uh, if the setting uh, kind of facilitates that. Yeah, so when I've run development mode sessions, uh, I, I've stuck to one card, um, but it, it's because I'm working with the the player to determine, all right, what is what is the big thing that you're trying to accomplish with this development mode scene? Like, are you like, is the character looking for some sort of esoteric information? Are they trying to, you know, get information from somebody uh, that they're interacting with here? And so I, I'm trying as, you know, from my end, I'm trying to narrow down what is the big question that's going to be answered here. And then once I feel like I understand what that is, then I'm going to draw a sooth card. And I actually really haven't ever looked at the number other than to say like, oh, it's a nine. Like, yeah, this totally works. Everything's great. Um but I, I don't look at that number to determine if it's successful or a failure. I've looked at it as, is it successful or like what goes wrong while you're getting this answer while you're doing this thing? Like if I, if I pull a two having, having built up this little story for the last five, 10 minutes or so, it always feels like a real, a real bummer to say like, Oh, we drew a two. It didn't work. So I always look at it as, Oh, hey, okay, we drew a really, really low numbered card. So something goes wrong, or you're going to pay some sort of cost in order to achieve your goal. So let's use this sooth card. Let's see what's on it and determine, you know, like use that as inspiration for what complications have come up, Mm -hmm. you know, 
in the process of you trying to achieve your goal. So I, I've always thought of that as a way more interesting outcome than just, oh, you wanted to get this hidden name about, you wanted a name of this creature that you encountered and you're talking to this strange being and you pulled it too. Well, rather than him, rather than the being just denying your request, what is the cost that's associated with it? Yeah, simple failure is seldom very interesting in a story. Uh, I think it's a good idea to use, like, it, but instead of just having failure, have uh, the tone of the sooth card define the nature of the cost. Mm -hmm. it, it could be that failure is interesting depending upon what the particular obstacle is, but it could also yep. be success with a greater cost than expected. And then this, the, the image on the sooth card or the associations with the sooth, sooth card can be helpful in determining what that cost should be uh, to make it more, much more interesting than, okay, you tried to jump over the chasm and you, you fell or you failed to get an answer. You know, the way that I've been running development mode, which is, you know, determine what the scene is and what, what are you trying to achieve in the scene? Having that just fail doesn't seem very interesting to me most of the time, which is why it's like, all right, how are we going to make this success a bit more dramatic than just you did it? Right. And, and the, because of these sorts of obstacles and the intention for the use of development mode, some skills are development mode skills, mm -hmm. and they are cheap in terms of acumen. I believe they're one acumen per point. Yep. But they tend to be very specific. Uh, you might even ha you might even buy them during the develop mode where you say, oh, well, I really want to do something that I, I can't do by the numbers or something like that. So what I'll do is I will just pay an acumen to invoke a skill that I now have in this hopefully very well-defined uh, domain. I mean, some of their examples were like, I think cartography might have been a develop mode skill. Yeah, that seems um, about right. Yeah, something very specific that's not, that wouldn't likely give you a big advantage in develop mode or narrative mode, though I could see that, or sorry, in narrative mode or action mode, though I could see cartography actually helping you in narrative mode. But that's. Uh, yeah, you could. Uh, I might suggest like maybe navigation would be more of the skill that you'd be looking for in narrative mode. Right. Or uh, familiarity with a particular geographic area. Yeah, that would definitely be development. So I mentioned this because uh, if you spend a lot of time in development mode, you are not spending uh, at, you know points from your pools very often. You are not going to worry about your defenses and your um, your combat skills very often. And so if you spend a lot of time in development mode, players are not likely to invest a great deal in those aspects of their characters. They'll instead be investing in the aspects of characters they use in development mode, which will be these much more specific development mode skills. And that's fine, but understand the implication that they're not going to be developing these other aspects of their characters. And uh, particularly if you switch modes, then if you spend you know two months doing mostly development mode and people have this complex suite of development mode skills, uh, and they roll into a dungeon and a creature is starting to, you know, is starting to bite them, um, suddenly realize they've never had a reason to spend points on uh, reflexes uh, or <laughs> uh, a weapon skill or anything along those lines. Mm -hmm. uh, and that that switch can be a, a, a major jolt um, and disconcerting for the player if they find themselves in a position that they are not prepared uh, to uh, to deal with. 
uh, as a minor bonus, I was playing develop mode. Uh, so de again, develop mode is based on this a pull of the sooth card, possibly multiple pulls, depending on how you play it. Uh, I found myself in a position where I wanted to do development mode and did not have the sooth deck with me. And the uh, the app can work for this. In fact, the app seems designed for development mode where it's in-person interaction because there's no guarantee that people at two locations will have the same path of suns in front of them. Uh, so you have to have the same device that is accessing the app to to for both or more players see to see the um, uh, the path of suns. But I didn't, that wasn't working either, be, probably because we were in an area without good reception. <laughs> so instead, what we did was we still had development mode, uh, but instead of using the sooth deck as a randomizer, we randomized on our uh, car radio. We were in the car, you might guess. And so we just flipped through several channels and then said, okay, you know, stop. That's the equivalent of the draw. Like, what's the name of the song? Or what is this song about? Or what is a, what's a word that we just heard in this song? And use that as inspiration for the tone uh, that we would normally get from the Sooth deck. And it worked out pretty well. Um, it probably depends a lot on the, the tone you get and the variety you get will depend on the variety of tone in the music that you listen to. Uh, but it was... It, it was useful to see that develop mode doesn't even need the sooth deck if you're willing to use these other sorts of randomizers. And it is shocking how much of the magic of the sooth deck translates to the magic of the, uh, the, the your your car stereo DJ uh, that seems to eerily have songs that answer your questions that you want for development mode. Uh, what suit would Achy Breaking Heart be in? <laughs> I, I don't know which suit... Um, Though I hard, it's hard for me to say it's more than a notion. It is not a secret. It is not a mystery. Oh, no, it's definitely secrets. Is it secrets? Yeah, because don't tell my heart. My aching oh, it... heart. You oh, got to keep okay. it a secret, man. See, I have a hole in my brain where that song would be. <laughs> you but keep that I was hole. Yes, when I was in college studying for an exam, I went to uh, my favorite place to study, Jay's Waffle and Steakhouse, 24 hours. And uh, I was going to study most of the night for this chemistry class. And they had a jukebox and something happened. And yes. Achy Breaky Heart played for 45 minutes to an hour before finally someone went over and just unplugged the device. Oh, my God. That's so good. <laughs> <laughs> it is so good and so horrible. So what other modes we got? Um. We have uh, two other modes that are we have more experience with from other mm -hmm. games, likely. We have narrative mode. Narrative mode, you uh, will typically have more of a focus on resources. You can spend points to cast spells. You might spend points to try to accomplish other tasks. Uh, you'd build your venture as you normally would. You could uh, you do all most of what you would do in the game. You can do in narrative mode. There's just not much of a focus on timing and sequence. Right. So you can talk about what you want to do and, and tasks might take uneven amounts of time. One person might say, I walk across the street to look in the window. Someone else might say, well, I'm going to take 10 minutes to do this. Like, oh, well, those are two very different scales of time. But in narrative mode, that's fine mm -hmm. because timing is not that much of an issue. Skills that are used for narrative mode uh, are often related to travel, uh, but could be related to any of these sort of non, uh, any sort of task where there isn't a great deal of time pressure. Uh, and they cost two acumen per point. These should be useful, but not based upon the sorts of uses you'd have in action mode. So it's, it would not include your skill in ranged medium weapons 
um, or your skill in resist or something along those lines. Uh, but it could include your skill in, um, uh, let's see, what's a good name? What is a good narrative mode skill example? Uh, climbing. Yep. Uh, sure. Cli- uh, climbing some investigation sorts of skills. Yeah. Knowledge research. skills. Yep. Streetwise. Yes. These skills would all be uh, appropriate for narrative mode. Uh, this is where my tables tends to spend about 90% of our time. Insight. <laughs> yes. Insight. Uh, so lots of those skills. Religion. Uh, I'm just going yep, through we... D&D skills that I remember from the top of my head. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Ninety percent um, of the time is where we, you know, land with narrative mode too. Yeah, and again, th- th- that's not because it's the right way to play. It is just the way that our tables roll. Um, and I'm, and, and it's it's worked out. Everyone seems to be enjoying this, so uh, it's worked out well for us. But with that balance, it means that people are not buying a lot of skills at all. They're buying some development mode skills, particularly um, knowledge skills perception skills and not technically a skill, but contacts, which are kind of, they're very narrative mode. Um, they're at the same sort of narrative mode scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, that's where my players are investing their resources because that's where we're playing. And that seems to be where people want to play. And this game lets you just pick a mode or mix or a mixture of the modes uh, and go with what uh, works for your table. The last mode is action mode. This is where you are, are, are likely more familiar from most uh, RPGs. This is where uh, you have uh, round by round tracking. Uh, the Invisible Sun doesn't really have initiative, really, but you still track sequence. And so if players are surprised, then the opposition goes first. If not, the players all go first. Uh, then the opposition goes, then the players go, then the opposition goes, and, and the sequence matters. Uh, even if it's not initiative tracking, like, okay, we're on initiative count 17. We don't have to worry about that. Uh, but still, sequence becomes important. Actions are time pressured. So we usually talk about action mode actions in matter of seconds. So you wouldn't have action mode. Um, oh, I'm going to go visit the this person to get information. No, that's, that's not action mode. That would take you a long period of time. Unless you have the appropriate spell. You might cast a spell that lets you instantaneously communicate with someone. That's true. But even a conversation would take a lot of time. Or you might have some sort of spell that lets you manipulate time uh, to your advantage. And even that, depending on how the spell is written, could cause a real problem for action mode. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, Yeah. This is mostly intended as the combat mode. So this is where, if when you buy skills, skills for action mode, by the way, cost three acumen per point. So they are the most expensive of the skill modes, of the skills from modes. Uh, And uh, that would include, you know, uh, close combat with a heavy weapon. Um, That would include uh, uh, resistance, or sorry, resist, or um, uh, other sort of defense skills, reflex, or I think, yeah, or is it dodge? Uh, It's uh, dodge, resist, and withstand. That's it. Okay. Yeah. One of those, these would be action mode skills. Um, I, I think the reason why they made these skills more expensive is because these are the skills most people from other RPG systems will naturally gravitate towards. And so, and when you, if, when you buy them, you become significantly more powerful in combat almost immediately. 
So they have a big influence on the traditional sorts of activities we think of with RPGs, which is hitting orcs with axes. Um, but that expense has had, is one of the reasons why I think my, my uh, players have stayed mostly in narrative mode. Because like, I don't want to mess with that, all, spending all that acumen. <laughs> we'll, stick, we'll stay in narrative mode and they avoid combat, at, if at all possible. Uh, and so they just haven't invested in uh, the resistances. To some degree, they have them through other character aspects, but they've not invested a lot in resistances and they have not res- invested much at all um, in attacks. Yeah, there, but other there are players a couple like of that. players at my table that, you know, they enjoy smashing things. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I should probably stress, hey, make sure you take some skills to, you know, help you avoid damage and then also to help you dish it out. Right. So what does this all mean for character building? Well, characters will invest where they think they will be using skills. If you play a lot of action mode, they're going to go ahead. They will buy those expensive combat skills. And when they do, they will become powerful in combat relatively quickly. So I have characters at my table that are like or level uh, or tier three. Is it tiers of the orders? Uh, anyway. Yeah, yeah. That um, sounds about right. Yeah. They're like, and you'd think these are powerhouses, and and they are in terms of their sorcery pools, in terms of the things they really like doing. But they are going to be way behind a tier two character who's really optimized for combat. That's because we just don't do a lot of action mode, and that's fine. Um, but if you have players who aren't investing in those skills, understand that some of the they may be they may not thrive facing combat encounters in the way you'd expect to given their tier or something along those lines. Uh, similarly, if someone invests in a whole bunch of combat skills and they've got three levels of skill in close uh, uh, hand-to-hand combat or something like that, and they spend a month of sessions just trying to gather knowledge, they may be frustrated because they don't feel like their, their investments have paid off. So the trick is to make sure that you understand that there are different tracks and you uh, you can invest in knowledge skills, you can invest in combat skills, you can invest in narrative types of skills versus action types of skills, or even development mode types of skills. But investing in one is not likely to help you much with the others. And when you do that, you're sort of picking a track. This won't be a problem unless there is a lack of coordination where there's different players at the table or there is a difference between the GM and the players about what track they think they're on. If you have players who are optimized for combat and they don't get to they don't get to swing their sword for three sessions, they're going to be frustrated. But similarly, if they've invested in a bunch of contacts and knowledges um, and travel or transportation sorts of skills, and you walk them into a dungeon and just say, "Here's orc number one," and then there's the room with the ogres in it, and there's the room with the uh, bitey elementals in it, um, then they'll be frustrated because like they're, they're, you know, they're not equipped to handle that sort of game. So make sure everyone kind of understands what the types of opposition are likely to be. And so that they can make characters that will, can do awesome things facing the opposition that they face rather than feeling unequipped to handle those challenges. As it is in the, uh, without giving any spoilers to the directed campaign, there's clearly one scene that is intended to be a combat scene. But like I said, my table avoids combat at all cost. So I came into that session knowing I would probably need to work with them to find a way to avoid combat 
rather than just hacking their way through this particular scene. Mm. Uh, and so almost all the time, sometimes there's, sometimes we still do combat, uh, but I usually try to have some idea of how combat is, is avoidable. Uh, so they can use their narrative mode skills to overcome that particular combat challenge. And that's not, that's just because that's where the table wants to, to play. That's the type of story they want to tell. I have a closing thought. Okay. Uh, if you're playing a weaver, then you can ignore all of this. Uh, elaborate on that a little bit. Weavers can do anything. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Especially when you don't track their sorcery spins in development mode. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from DriveThruRPG. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Agonseer, that's at A-G-O-N-S-E-E-R, on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore Red on Twitter. So please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes uh, or whichever uh, podcast app you are using. Uh, it really helps us out. Uh, we also like seeing ratings and reviews, whether they're good or bad. Uh, or else just tell a friend about the show. That's another great way to get the word out and ha help people find us. <laughs>